Thank you, Brother Virgil. Okay, so I want to start, um, we'll do a quick review here by looking at our charts and diagrams. But based on what we know thus far in chapter 6, pretend you've not read chapters 7 and 8, or that you're not familiar with 7 and 8. Give me three adjectives or three describing words or three phrases to identify Gideon simply based on chapter 6, what we talked about last week. And there's no necessarily perfect answer, but three adjectives to describe Gideon based on chapter 6 alone. Skeptical was one of them. That's fair. What did you say, Mr. Bruce? A man of valor. Perfect phrase because that's what God calls him. Cautious. Any others? Hesitant? And the reason I started that, if you've read through chapter 7 and 8, you probably already know where I'm going with this, is because Gideon is one of those great character studies in the Old Testament where you can really develop a person, see a person's character develop. That doesn't mean that he's going to have this upward uh, motion or trajectory without any bumps in the road. We'll see where there are some, maybe some possible issues and maybe a little bit of ambiguity regarding his character as we get into the latter part of chapter 8. We'll save that for our discussion at the tail end of our study together tonight. Anything from chapter 6 that, we, that you wanted to bring up that we did not address uh, last session? All right. If you think of something, be sure and let us know. Um, but just as a quick review, I'll put this up each week. We won't belabor the point more than 30 seconds, but it's just the cycle of judges uh, that someone drew up. And you can find a number of, if you just type in cycles of judges, you'll find all kinds of little diagrams that are very helpful that show things going well, then things going poorly, and then things getting worse. And then they call out to God through repentance and uh, sorrow. God provides a deliverer. The deliverer dies. Uh, in the case of Gideon, after his death, there's a period of peace for how many years? 40. Someone said 40. Yes, we see that in chapter 8. And then they forget about um, God. They forget about what the, the uh, judge, uh, deliverer has taught them. And then they go back and the cycle repeats itself. We also had two different cycles of alliteration that I'll put up there real quickly for those of you who weren't here for our first week. One was uh, S's and one was R's, and that's, again, self-explanatory. It's the cycle going one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. It's just, just very musical almost, just not a very pleasant sound to it uh, as you move from service to sin to slavery to sadness to Savior back to service to God and then moving on from there. Okay, so that's where we were. That's what we've done thus far. I want to get into chapter 7. We're going to do um, maybe a little more reading than we normally do because the text just is so helpful tonight. Uh, I want to read, uh, let's start chapter 7 and um, read down through about verse, well, I don't, no, I don't want to do that. Um, I, I want to read just verses 1 and 2. Let's just start with verses 1 and 2. Uh, Drewel, that is Gideon, and he'd gotten that, that surname, nickname, new name in the previous chapter 
were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. This is one of those places where God uh, makes a choice about what he's going to do, and he's very clear with his intentions. Not that God is ever unclear with what he wants from us, but sometimes we're left to wonder, I wonder why God did that, and then we find out maybe later in the story. But very quickly, the author of the book of Judges says, I'm telling you why this is happening the way that it is happening. Uh, and what, what is the rationale for whittling down the force? Just in a phrase or two. And you can just quote from the Bible or just or, or go for it. Brother Jonathan. Well, it's that um, Israel could easily think that they had delivered themselves. Uh, it might be worth pointing out that you see shades of the New Testament here in what Ephesians 2 says in verses... 8 and 9, you've been saved by grace through faith, uh, that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God. So God demonstrates his power in his salvation, and it's seen that it's not as a result of works so that no one should boast. Israel could have easily boasted um, that they delivered themselves. We, if, if there were some way we could deliver ourselves, mm-hmm. it would be in ourselves, and we could boast about that, but it's not that way. Excellent comparison passage. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And to quote from the text, I put in quotes, my own hand has saved me. He says, I want to avoid you making that statement. Because if you come in with a powerful army of tens of thousands of people and you go up against the Midianites, you might very well say, well, look how powerful we are. God says, at the very outset, I want to avoid that even possibly from happening. So in verse 3, therefore proclaiming the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, 10,000 remained. So uh, not a very good mathematical person, but that's about two-thirds, right? Give or take a a few. So um, comment on that, the offer of the Lord. And if you've got a passage that you want to bring up, but what do you think about that statement made by, by the Lord, or in this case, uh, speaking here, saying, if you're fearful, you can go back home, no questions asked. Does that teach us anything? Yes, Brother Bruce. In this particular case, with the type of movement they were going to make, you certainly uh, would not want people turning in the middle of the attack, so to speak. And so God knew what he was doing here and whittling down. Right. Uh, That's a great observation. Yeah. So one of the worst things for a fighting force, I would assume, would be a large portion of that fighting force, or any portion of that fighting force, having timidity, having second thoughts, having that kind of stuff. Go ahead. One other, one other occasion, uh, people who had just married. Correct. Go into battle, people who have things on their mind. Uh, and when you go into the sort of night attack, so to speak, mm-hmm. and this is what we learned as, as military students, not what God learned from us. 
Mm -hmm. But you don't want anyone who has anything on their mind, whether it right. be a hospitalization of someone Correct. or other thing, to take their focus Excellent. off of what they're supposed to be Very doing. Very good. You want them solely focused on the mission. Uh, Brother Kerry. I just find it interesting that just when we get to Joshua, or back in Joshua, he, he said, be strong and courageous. Uh, and, and, and stress to the people, be strong and courageous, but yet here, it was okay to, to or at least that's the impression I get, that sure. it's okay if you're afraid or trembling, go, because God had a purpose mm -hmm. in mind to show his power. Very good. I just find uh, it interesting, the contrast. That's, that's very good contrast to bring up, and we're going to shed a little bit of light on that here in just a second with a passage that we've kind of just swung around. We'll, we'll get to it here in just a second. Uh, going back to Brother Bruce's comment, uh, both Bruce and Carrie had really good comments. Uh, I have a distant family relative who was on a nuclear submarine, and I remember that when the wife was pregnant or when there was any emergency, they had very strict rules about not allowing him to know for extended periods of time about the health of her because his job was so serious and you know something could go because if, if he makes a mistake we have a, a very huge problem on our hands so that you, you have that kind of thing going on here note if you would and i'm going to put up deuteronomy 20 in verse 8 if you want to flip over there real quickly um just want to read that one passage here real quickly here it says the officers shall speak further to the people this is in the section regarding war Deuteronomy 28, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren uh, faint like his heart. So this is principle codified in law that now the people and judges are seeing come to fruition. Um, but I think it is important. I mean, yeah, we've got Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. But rather than God saying, I'm off with your heads. For your fearfulness, he just says, go home, be at peace. And it kind of goes back to the, the thing that we began stressing a couple of weeks ago that we're going to kind of weave as a thread throughout our entire study of Judges, and that is the patience of God, the compassion of God, the kindness of God, and how he's dealing with these people, very much so. Um, and then we have the test regarding the drinking. Let's go uh, drinking of the water. Let's go ahead and read this text, and then we'll talk about that for no more than three minutes, because we could spend the rest of our time just talking about that. Well, maybe four minutes. The Lord said to Gideon, "The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water. I will test them for you there. Then it will be of that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. The same shall go with you. And of whom I say this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go." Brought the people down to the water of the people. The Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, he shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. The number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. And again... Incredible compassion, patience, and kindness from God in response to those that were not, uh, who were not going to be in that select group of 300. 
So let's talk about that, like I said, for just three or four minutes here. Um, and I went back and forth with my slides because I, I didn't want to, I, I knew I couldn't devote too much time to this uh, because we've got so much else to cover. But comments on this. Bruce and I had a, had a nice conversation Sunday, I think it was. Uh, I'm getting old, so I get forgetful what day I talked with, with whoever. But uh, thoughts on this? Well, the two positions were one dropped to their knees with, with one knee on the ground. And this is according to Hebrew Bible and, and uh, commentary and other references. Uh, they were still ready to fight. They used the one hand, if you notice here, mm -hmm. it said hand, singular. Mm -hmm. So they brought that hand up from the water, which was less noisy than these others who were uh, laying down in a position. That's an interesting and observation. scooping up the water. That makes an awful lot of noise. And noise is a great, uh, water is a great carrier of sound. Right. Uh, and so these were these were quiet. These were ready, prepared. They were shielded from the Midianites uh, if they should come, uh, and they were ready to, to react. The others uh, were simply uh, their weapons at their side. They were They'd laying much on their slower to react with enough. One interesting comment by a rabbi on that was that. Um, perhaps God, and he didn't say God did, but perhaps God uh, looked at those uh, as doing what they had formerly done in the Baal worship, that is, hmm. uh, bowing down, so to speak, prostrate on the ground. But that's just a just a, an idea. But the, the mission they were going on, it was important they be quiet, they be prepared, they be uh, brave about what they were doing. I'm going to go ahead and put, thank you, Brother Bruce. I'm going to go ahead and put up, if someone else has something, I'm going to go ahead and put everything up on the screen for this slide. Um, first of all, uh, I'll, put, I'll put it all up here and we'll come back and deal with all these here, is uh, notice verse 7, the terminology is, or I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Who's the I there? It's obviously the Lord. Same thing, verse 2, that we talked about at the outset of our study tonight. I will deliver. I don't want there being so many thousands of soldiers that it's all about you guys. Um, and then over to the right, it seems as if, and we, we last week we talked about rabbit holes and that you can go down. And we can, you can do a, a full 45-minute study. I spent about 20 minutes because <laughs> I, I, was, I was coming up with the same kind of conclusions uh, that Brother Bruce was. Uh, but it seems as if it, it is something about preparedness, alertness, readiness for the, for, the, for the battle ahead, for the thought ahead. But the other thing, and the, the thing I put in the bottom right of the red box, is it's that chosen divine way of keeping the focus, making sure it's on God and not on man. It's on God's deliverance, not on man's deliverance. And the reason I put that up there, and I... I and limiting this discussion somewhat is because we can get caught up in the details of all this and lose sight of the fact that the whole big message here is that God saves. It's not about man saving. And so these are just different ways that God's going about proving that particular message. Um, anything else on the first seven or eight verses here before we... Yeah, Brother John, uh, right here, Michael. John, Brother John's celebrating a birthday today, right? Just, we did. 
246. <laughs> Just a word about the fear to be brave and courageous. I don't think anybody that's gone into combat has, has not felt some degree of fear. But the brave and the courageous are the ones that over, overcome the fear and sure. do your duty anyway. And uh, I think that's maybe why it was okay for some of these men to admit that they were afraid to some degree and he let them. Of course, he just, God was just using that as a means to whittle down the number anyway. Right. So if it hadn't have been that, it would have been, he would have used something would have else some to get to it. To get to that yeah. same conclusion, yeah. Drop down to verse 12, then we'll come back to verse 9. Verse 12 says, The Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, this is chapter 7, verse 12, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. That's one of the Old Testament's favorite illustrations to get the point across that it's a lot. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. So the reason I point that out in advance is because uh, the Lord is promising in advance that in spite of the formidable enemy as illustrated in verse 12, he says, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Um, assured victory. Things are going to work out well for you because I am on your side. And it goes back to this theme that will, I think I put it as one of our applications. Yeah, in fact, it's our first application, big one. God, God, God. It's all about him. It's all about his power. It's all about his salvation. It's all about his provision and not about man. He does not want a situation where now the focus becomes an object. There's a little push towards chapter 8, verse 24, 25. Doesn't want it to be a person. Doesn't want it to be anything else except him. Um, let's talk about the dream. Someone walk me through the, the, the conversation about the bread roll. That happens in the next couple of verses. At least I think there's a conversation. <laughs> I have it in my notes that there's something about a bread roll. Who? Let me. Let me. That's kind of. A, I know it's, we could just read the text, but who's having the conversation about the bread roll? Midianites, and one of them has had this vision or had this dream, right? And if you look uh, at the bread dream in verse. Uh, 13, to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell over, turned, and the tent collapsed. It, they did not call for an interpreter. They did not call for someone from Israel to say, what does this mean? His companion, his buddy, his friend speaks up and he says, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, who into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Then notice, if you would, what is Gideon's reaction or what's his response to this in verse 15, in short? He worships. He worships. Okay? Something to be said about that. And again, this is another reminder of God's character or God's patience. So there's so many different lessons weaved within this story about Gideon where we're learning more about his character more about who he is. Is he a perfect individual? No, we're going to see some issues with that as we, we get into the last 
third of our study together tonight. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies, put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. This is Judges 7, verse 16. He said, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, you will also blow trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men, and by the way, notice the, the order in verse 18. It's not the sword of Gideon and the sword of the Lord. I don't think that's accidental. The sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon. God comes first. It's the power of uh, the might of the Lord that they are to be fearful. Gideon and the hundred men who are with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle. Watch. Anybody have a footnote as to when that roughly would have been or you've studied that before? Most historians suggest somewhere uh, before midnight, 10, 10 o'clock, depending on how you, you do your watches in ancient history. Just as they had posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands, the 300, the, sorry, three, the three companies, 300 men, blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers, held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, Every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, this is verse 22, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. The army fled to Beth Acacia, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Maholah, by Tabith. Um, verse 22, uh, where it says, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion. Let's just make sure that we understand, especially if we're talking with someone who doesn't understand what's happening in verse 22. Yeah, they're killing each other at this point, right? There is mass chaos and confusion. And it looks as if they, in my mind, I've got this picture of surrounded. And like the army is, the, the army of 300 seemingly bigger than 300. We are, we, we're overwhelmed. They're coming from every direction. I hear the enemy, but I can't see where he's coming from. But I, someone, and it's happened when there's this switch of the guard, it seems, at around 10 o'clock at night or whatever this watch has happened. And maybe people are a little bit relaxed. Hey, how was your shift? Oh, it's boring as always. How's your going to be? It's going to be boring as always. Next thing you know, it's complete chaos that breaks out. So that's the victory over Midian that we see here in these verses. And if, and not to be the broken record, but it's all about God's power over man's military might. That's all that God is trying to get across here. It's, it's, I've got it under control. Thoughts on uh, the first 22 verses before we get to the last. Uh, Brother Allen and Brother Bruce, in, in any order you want. We'll go with Brother Allen first since you're closer. Oh, brother, I'm sorry, Brother Nate, Nate, then Allen, then <laughs> just start with Nate. <laughs> Give Michael a workout. That's right, Brother Nate. First, I guess one a little bit of clarification. Earlier, when Bruce was talking about the kneeling and the laying down, the lapping of water and stuff, um, those who were kneeling down, scooping water up with one hand, those were the ones that were, were more likely more prepared, right? Well, I don't and, know that they kneeled down. Well, the, it, it went the ones down that brought their hands up, yeah. the, the hand singular, you pointed out, hand singular. Yeah. Um, but the ones who laid down were lapping up were the ones... Miners and were probably less prepared, and those are the ones that God chose. Were the ones that were less prepared than right? 
No, he chose the 300 who were laying down, right? No, the okay. ones that were not laying down. Okay. Am, I, am I correct? I just read it wrong then. Okay. 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 But that's okay. No, 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 that, 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 that answers a lot because um, I was just misunderstanding the sure. reading of that. But, you know, in all of this, you know, we see God planted, you know, when, when that person had that vision, mm -hmm. where did that vision or that dream, where did that come from? You know, and what did that initially sow in the hearts of those mediators? Right. Fear. Fear. And that fear caused all that chaos and commotion. So God did every bit of that. It had nothing to do with, with Gideon and his men. They just solely did what right. God instructed them to do. Absolutely. Uh, very good. Brother Allen, then we'll go to Brother Bruce. Then we'll go to Brother uh, Jason when you're done with Bruce. Uh, back to Brother Chris Simmons. So let's go Allen, Bruce, Chris. Just piggybacking on that, there's... There's a little bit of temptation, I think we read this story, to still try to attribute some of this success to these guys where we, where we look and say, okay, well, why did, okay, so the ones that weren't afraid, they stayed, okay, and we, we look at the water respectfully, I might push back a little bit on that. I think those guys got picked because there was only 300 of them. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the point the, of the scripture the, really. The focus on the number. That it's, it's hardly any of them. And, and they're not needed for anything other than making a big racket, breaking some pottery and blowing a trumpet. They don't need military, military skills. skills. <laughs> you know, they, I think God is going out of his way to show, I'm completely doing this. You guys are barely involved. I am saving you. Watch how I do this. Right. I think that's the big right. takeaway here. Thank you for that. Uh, Brother Bruce and then Brother Chris. I believe God's wisdom in all of this, and, and I base mine, Alan, on, on years of experience in, in just these sorts of things, and so I don't mean to imply that man sure. is important, but God's wisdom in making this happen exactly as they had changed the guards, mm -hmm. because here's, here's the thing, it takes your eyes about 45 minutes to an hour to adjust to the night then you can see clearly. Uh, so don't know how much time it took place, but they were in, in confusion because now they've got these other lights in the, in the woods that are breaking open and, and they're diminishing their, their night vision as well. And I don't know point. what the terrain was like, but it must have been very, very uh, shocking to each other and they were just uh, slashing the first person that right. they saw. Right. All because God had had already had these things and uh, understanding uh, you know, the things of nature that he created, he used them against, against the arm. Very good, thank you. Brother Chris? I think it's interesting that Gideon was in the enemy's encampment uh, within hearing distance of them talking at a normal level where they say, this is, this is my dream, this is my interpretation. And his response was to worship right there. Right. He didn't wait till he went back to his encampment. He didn't sneak away. He was like, I'm thankful right now. And I, I love that. I agree. That's, that's a great observation. He worshiped right then, right there. Uh, Brother Josh, right behind you, Michael. By the way, we appreciate our AV guys. We really do. Got to keep Michael busy. <laughs> One thing that I guess hadn't really struck me a whole lot until reading through this time was is that there's not really a lot of discussion about the faith of the 300. 
I mean, I can imagine being, if I was in this group and start off with 32,000 men, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty brave. You make it through the first round of cuts, you know, and then you get down to 300, and then all of a sudden, I may not be so brave anymore, <laughs> considering what you're going up against. But they still charged ahead and, and, and had faith, and I think that's a, a huge testament to them. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Uh, Brother Kerry. I'm just going to, I guess, to me, the last statement on your slide says it all. God's power is greater than man's military might. And we see that here. We see that consistently in the prophets mm -hmm. where God's power, regardless of how mighty the army of man is, God's will and God's army prevails. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. And that's one of the big, big, big takeaways of the night that I wanted us to kind of really reinforce. Anything else on chapter 7? I want to go ahead and, and bounce to chapter 8 um, in our final 15 minutes, see if we can get through most of it. Um, chapter 8 is a shift a little bit, uh, both in tone, in tenor, and in character evaluation, though the first three or four verses, to me, seems to be very complimentary towards Gideon. Uh, the men of Ephraim said, why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So what's happening here with, the, with Ephraim, this, the, with their tribe? How are they feeling? Left out, disrespected. The word I used was slighted. Hey, uh, what are we? We'd like to have a piece of this victory as well. You know, we'd like to compete for a couple of those spots in the 300 that, you know, that Carrie was talking about a minute or so ago. How does Gideon respond? Diplomatically. There's a good word. The diplomat, I didn't think about that word. Um, I just said appreciate the response of Gideon. What does Proverbs 15.1 say? Someone's, someone's quoting it over here. Uh, and I wouldn't have known either if I didn't look it up. But a soft answer is the idea of turning away someone's wrath. So, and we all struggle with this from time to time. We get frustrated with someone when they come and they, the New King James says, reprimanded him. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the graves of Ephraim better than the vengeance of Ebiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian or Mazib, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? And their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So I like the, I like the, the terminology that Brian used, diplomatic. I think there's a huge lesson that we can learn from this. When someone reprimands you, when someone complains, we don't have to just completely... Or, or someone says, well, I want you to think about this and... Maybe it's just kind of a roundabout way of, of saying something that kind of makes you bristle or otherwise respond like, mm, I don't know, I like your tone. Uh, maybe, maybe trying to soften that is a good way of doing it. Now, it doesn't mean that we acquiesce in terms of the doctrine. You know, someone says, well, baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Well, bless your heart. 
You know, no, I do believe that baptism is necessary for salvation based on these passages. We say so kindly, but forcibly. I'm not talking about issues like that, but I'm talking about matters of opinion or matters of judgment or when someone feels like they've been slighted. Um, rather than saying, well, I didn't slight you, maybe respond by saying, I'm sorry you felt that way. I would not want that to be the case. I wouldn't want you to feel that way. And softening, lowering, lowering the, the, the volume or the temperature in the room is what Gideon was doing here. And I think that's just something about his character. Thoughts on that, if, if we have any? Uh, that's just the way I read it. I just love that particular little story inserted in here. Okay. Um, then things get a little bit out of control uh, in the next couple of verses. Let's read verses 4 through maybe 7 or 8 here. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and 300 men who were with him crossed over, and it says they were, the New King James says they were exhausted. You mean I have a different word? Weary. Weary. Yeah, they're, they're, they're worn out. You can imagine what they've gone through. Even though, as we pointed out, and Alan made this point, these people didn't really do anything in terms of having to engage in a real big fight but they're still exhausted from the, from the marching and from the traveling and from, and, and mentally they're probably exhausted as well because, you know, like Brother John pointed out, even if you're brave, you still have this sense of, there's got to be a little bit of fear mixed in there. He said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I am pursuing, I am pursuing the two kings of Midian. The leaders of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zal Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? I read that, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong. I read that as, do you have them yet? <laughs> because if you don't have them, they're still a threat to us, right? And we're not going to, we don't want to be complicit in your campaign against them. So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered the two kings into my hand, I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went out from there to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And they answered him just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Always thought verse 9 was kind of interesting. When I come back in peace, I'm going to tear down your tower. And historians tell us that they had this tower that people would flee to for safety and was kind of their, um, their, their monument to themselves and their community. So, um, what's going on here before we get to verses 10 through 12? Jealousy. Jealousy. That's a good word that we haven't used so far tonight, but I'm glad you brought that up, Miss Diana. I also put up there this refusal of hospitality. Remember that we talked about all the way back in Genesis about a year and a half ago? You can remember back then? I remember it because I taught it. Um, and when you teach something, you remember it a whole lot. One of the reasons to teach is because you remember better when you teach. So if you can teach a children's class or an adult class or whatever, sometimes it sticks with you a little bit better. But we talked about the importance of hospitality in the cultures thousands of years ago. And that when you did not show hospitality, it was like a, a not necessarily a mark of death because it's not that serious. But people remember you. You did not serve me bread. You did not share with me. You did not open your home to me. 
And so people in the Old Testament would go above and beyond to show hospitality. Remember Abraham with the angels, unbeknownst to him, angels. And he says, please make some cakes for them so that they can dine with us today, he says to Sarah. Um, is, and I usually I ask questions I know the answers to, what does this say about Gideon? This is one of those cases where I'm just kind of, David and I had this discussion today, and one of the things I enjoy doing is when I get a little uh, like, I'm not sure what this is saying, I, David. He never comes to me with things he doesn't know because he knows it all. <laughs> I'm kidding. He comes to me frequently. We have great discussions, but we love working together. Um, but I was talking with him about this today. What, what does this say about Gideon? And I'm not sure what it says. I, I struggle with it. So help me out. Or am I reading too much into it? Is this, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, am I making myself clear? Have I made you completely confused now? Yes, uh, Charmin, and then Sam, right up here in the front. I was just looking, was God even mentioned? Was God even mentioned in this particular segment? So that's, that's very interesting. And you, now you're kind of going down the road that I'm, I'm thinking here. But yeah, I'm, I, I, no, he's not, to my knowledge. Brother Sam? Right. And I'm wondering if these people, they've been in bondage for seven years. Mm -hmm. They may not know what's really what's going on here with Gideon and with God. And so for them to say, look, you know, we, we don't know if you're going to even come back. Uh, we feel safer not doing anything right now until we find out how this is going to end. So you, you almost can't blame them. Sure. Even okay. though we know what happens. Yeah. Um, but I think what Gideon is, is doing is saying, you know what? Uh, we're going to prove to you that God is with us in this. Um, that, that's how I read it. You know, sure. He's just saying, you know what? That's very fair. We're going to show you. And they're going to be an object lesson for everyone else now. Okay. Uh, Brother Brian, right behind you, Michael. I think it's a little bit tough to assign motive, but what I do think is interesting in this chapter is the stark contrast between the men of Ephraim who are so desirous to play an even bigger role in this battle and their participation level and the men here of Succoth and Penuel that don't want anything to do with it at all. And so again, maybe tough to assign motive, but you see the two sides of the coin, people that are so upset they didn't get to do more and people that don't want anything to do with it. And that just maybe gives you a little bit That's of insight into the landscape of Israel at that time. Yeah. And I appreciate the shout out for my Sunday evening sermon because I'm, one of the sub points in my sermon is the idea of, of questioning motives. So thank you for that. But I, that is very, very important. Brother Bruce over here. Uh, Jason's got a microphone for him. Just a question. Uh, you asked what this says about Gideon. Does it not sound like David and uh, Nabob mm -hmm. when he came to ask for bread and yep. was refused? See, we talked about that today, didn't we? Yeah, we did. So, yeah, it does, it, there are some striking similarities to First Samuel something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's kind of put, just think about that for the next few days or whatever. Uh, but let's go ahead and progress a little bit further. Uh, the hunt for the two kings. And then, verse 11, Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents, on the east of Nobah and Jogbeha, I'm doing the best I can, 
And he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When the kings fled, he pursued them, took the kings of Midian, and routed the whole army. Talked about the trajectory of Gideon and ups and downs. This is one of those points that I was, I was driving at here. Note Gideon's confidence at this point compared to the timidity of, can I ask you a favor, God? Can you show me? Okay, thank you for showing me. Will you show me again? <laughs> you know, so Gideon has, I, in, in my estimation, there's, there's growth on the part of Gideon. That, again, it doesn't mean that he's perfect. doesn't mean that he's whole. doesn't mean that he doesn't have room for improvement. But it certainly is, this is a little bit of a different flavor of Gideon from chapter 6 early versus 10 when he's hiding in the wine press. And wow, now he's routing people. He's saying, that's it, you're out of here. I'm done with you. Um, and then so he goes back to the two villages, to the two cities. I'm told that these two cities are kind of neighbor cities, uh, five to six miles apart is what I read earlier today. Uh, and he punishes them just as he had promised. Uh, verse 17, he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Um, so he, he, he kept his word. He said, I'm coming back for you, and he did. Um, does this say anything about Gideon? And again, sometimes I ask questions. I know the, I'm just, I've, I've struggled with Gideon today. Just think about that for a few minutes. So, uh, We've got three minutes left here, enough to get through most of chapter 8. Uh, what does he do with the Midianite kings? He executes them. What does he initially ask in terms of the execution in, in the, before he actually kills them? He says to his son, rise up and kill him. And his son says what? He says, no, I'm not going to do it. Why? And the Bible tells us why he wasn't going to do it. Why, why wasn't he going to do it? He says he was, uh, he was young. He was uh, a youth. Uh, look at verse uh, 19, uh, verse 20. But the youth would not draw a sword, for he was afraid, just as Brother Brian pointed out, because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmana said... Verse 21, and I wish this was on, well, I don't want to, because it'd be kind of ugly, but I do kind of wish it was on audio tape to hear the tone of verse 21. Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. Translate that. Say again. Kill us if you're chicken. Yeah. Kill us if you're chicken. Yeah. I, th I think they're, they're calling him out at this point. And someone also pointed out, and I hadn't thought about this before, that dying at the hand of Gideon, this mighty warrior, would probably go down in history, has the potential of going down in history in their history books, though the winners write the history, right? The losers don't, some we say, uh, as being more noble than being killed by the son of the, um, of the great mighty warrior, Man of Valor. Brother Roger over here. Jason, you got him? Thank you. Yeah, it says here that the 300 men with Gideon routed that army Correct. and captured them. If God done it all, mm -hmm. then why are they doing this now? Yeah. Those 300 men still had to carry out. God routed their army right. and gave them to them, but right. those men still had to carry out. They still have the mission. So, yes. Yeah. All right. 
Um, I want to pause there because I know we're, but I still have eight more verses I want to cover. We'll put a pin there, and I'm going to write myself a note. Next week, let's do the last eight to 12 verses of chapter eight because there's still a couple of details we need to flesh out. We'll do the applications, and then we'll get into uh, Abimelech, whose name means, just to kind of throw more, what does the name Abimelech mean? Son of a king, right? Hmm, interesting. Think about that for a week. Thank you all.